This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 14th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. A 21-year-old National Guardsman releases key U.S. classified documents to friends online. The documents themselves detail U.S. plans with respect to war in Ukraine. Cato's Eric Gomez and Patrick Eddington discuss the leak and some of the implications for securing military and intelligence secrets. This leak concerned the war in Ukraine about and it had a lot there was a lot of information about U.S. plans with respect to uh, Ukraine. And I guess what what do we have to say about the, the nature of the substance of uh, the documents that was leaked just broadly? So I think broadly, it's somewhat unsurprising in the sense that if you've been watching the Ukraine war unfold without any kind of access to classified intelligence, it's clear that the recent fighting around Bakhmut has gotten very much like a stalemate. And the idea of a upcoming Ukrainian offensive that would sort of turn the tide and and put the Russians on the back foot, it's been announced well in advance. We don't know exactly when it's going to start, but we know it's coming. But it also is true that, number one, a lot's riding on it. And number two, the ability for Ukraine to, to sort of have the wild success that they had in a previous offensive is at best, I think, relatively doubtful. And and I think the the content of the, you know, it, it sheds some more specific information about why that success could be doubtful. Um, but the broad strokes have been, I think, known for a long time. So what I think is critical to understand here is that, and there are some folks, there's some NATSEC hawks out there like Javad Ali and some others that are basically trying to conflate this leak uh, with you know, previous episodes of information, uh, classified information, you know, getting dumped out there. And and there's really no comparison, you know, just, and Snowden's name, of course, has come up a lot um, because there were a lot of so-called insider threat type things that were instituted to try to preclude that kind of thing from happening again. Let's just remind everyone listening to this that Edward Snowden exposed crimes against the Constitution perpetrated by people in the executive branch charged with upholding our constitutional rights. That's what Ed Snowden did. And that's why Snowden is a whistleblower in the classic sense, just like former Army Captain Chris Pyle, Dan Ellsberg, Tom Tam, and Chelsea Manning. Mr. Teixeira, I believe that's how the gentleman's name is pronounced, this this 21-year-old leaked information revealing the the relative level of penetration of the U.S. intelligence community into Russian communication systems, as revealed by operations uh, in, in the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. Those leaks will lead to the loss of intelligence about Russian intentions and capabilities, information that's vital to the Ukrainians in their fight against Putin. So this is real. So with respect to this leak versus the Snowden leak, those two letters F-I, we're talking about foreign intelligence. That's correct. We're not talking about, broadly speaking, uh, massive, uh, broad information awareness about the activities of Americans. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, some of the other stuff that that this kid dumped out there on South Korea, Egypt, and several of the the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, sure, it's going to cause public heartburn. Uh, for a lot of those officials. But as I posted on the Cato blog earlier this week, the South Koreans were spying on the U.S. Congress in the mid-1970s, according to the FBI. So this is what countries do to each other, right? And it doesn't, in the end, matter whether they're necessarily allies or adversaries. That's the basic job of, of the intelligence community. But there's really not much doubt that 
And and again, I have not seen these documents. I've been very careful not to do that um, for a lot of reasons. Um, so my comments are based on reporting from the Post, uh, New York Times, the Washington Times, BBC, and others. But there's really not much doubt that we are talking about a leak that will have battlefield-related consequences that could be very, very bad for Ukraine. And we can go into more detail on that if we want. All right. So with respect to the, the leak itself, um, not the substance of what's in it, uh, the appropriate question seems to be, why does a 21-year-old National Guardsman uh, have access to this need-to-know type information? So I I didn't get my first secret clearance until I went to the Army Officer uh, Armor School for my my initial training in 1986. I was 23 when I got that, and it was just a secret clearance. I absolutely did not have access to raw signals intelligence or human intelligence or anything like that. Right? It was just stuff on Russian order of battle and other things that, ironically, I still can't get into because I'm not sure it's all been declassified at this point. This is this is something that I think they're going to have to really rethink, you know, in a lot of respects. Um, there are a lot of young people, you know, who can show a relative level of discretion and good judgment, you know, in, in having access, you know, to certain kinds of things. But the amount of information that this kid was privy to and that people in that entire unit, apparently, at least at that level, were privy to. Um raises questions in my mind about, you know, just exactly how much of that kind of stuff ought to be filtered down to that level. I, to add at the, I, Pat, I don't have your experience in, in the IC or in the military, but uh, there's also an issue here, I think, with questions of how many, how much information is classified within the U.S. government and how uh, the phenomenon of overclassification, right? Because if someone pointed out, there's well over a million people who work in the, for the U.S. government who have a top secret S, like security clearance that could have access to this type of thing. That's a lot of people, and with with any group of that size, you're bound to get a few, you know, like, and that number goes up the larger that that group is. Uh, so I, I think if you want to, if listeners want to hear more about that. Uh, check out a recent Cato Power Problems podcast that my colleague John Glazer does. Uh, we had um, an academic, I believe her name's Una Hathaway, on to talk about the phenomenon of overclassification and, and sort of the that leads to you know the need for a bunch of people to have levels of clearance that may not be uh, conducive to stopping stuff like this. And I'll refer people to Pat Eddington's testimony recently on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. uh, relating uh, directly to this problem as well. So, but to answer the question, uh, you know, how do you get access to this information if you clearly do not have the proper authority to do so? Well, you know, this this young man was in the 102nd uh, Intelligence Wing of the Massachusetts National Guard. And, uh, you know, what most listeners, you know, may not necessarily be aware of is as a result of a lot of the reorganization that took place in the U.S. military after uh, the Vietnam War, an awful lot of these combat support or combat uh, service support roles really became the responsibility of the reserve and guard elements here in the United States. And so you have... Actually, an awful lot of folks uh, in intelligence billets and in intelligence units that are guard and reserve that wind up getting called up, you know, um, 
fairly periodically in order to supplement, you know, the relative, the much smaller uh, active duty force that we have uh, in terms of providing this kind of, of support. But I, I think what this episode, I think, kind of underscores at the end of the day is, at least in this unit, there was a complete lack of proper supervision uh, in in terms of what this what this kid had access to, and and I I think you know, everybody else that's in that unit from the commanding officer on down, you know, there's going to be a massive uh, investigation on this. And it, it will, it will no doubt snowball well beyond, you know, this particular uh, guard unit in Massachusetts. There's going to probably be a top to bottom um, reevaluation. At least they'll go through the motions of it, right? Um, there'll, there'll be a lot of talk about it, whether it will actually result in a tightening up essentially of the system and a reevaluation of what actually should be classified or not. That's a that's an open question. But of course, you would say it absolutely should be a part of that. There's no doubt. I mean, you know, when I testified in front of the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee in in, uh, in March of this year, you know, one of the points that I made was that we've had essentially an explosion just in the volume of information that's out there. And that volume by itself, I think, raises fundamental questions about how much of this stuff should really be classified. In this particular case, this is an example of the kind of thing that I talked about as being completely legitimate for classification, because here you're talking about current military operations and current U.S. military support. Um, I, I just really think that when we start talking about intelligence programs and activities, you really do have to, I think, long and hard think about whether or not you want folks that are that young and that inexperienced having access to that kind of information. I, I you have a mission that you have to do, and I get that, but but we know from neuroscience, and I'll just bring this into the equation, we know from neuroscience, lots and lots of studies in neuroscience, that the human brain does not really completely finish formation and maturation until about age 25, right? That's the kind of thing that I think needs to be taken into consideration when we're talking about access, you know, to this kind of information, because, you know, a 21-year-old having access to current intel of this nature, not a good idea. It's How, just what, not a good idea. What are the parallels here between other cases? What's the best parallel, I guess, for uh, other cases? It's it, reality winner. Is that the better parallel? You know, I, I would say in, in, in Winner's case, I think she had to some degree some, you know, some mixed motives, but I think her overarching motive was to expose, you know, the level of, of Russian chicanery taking place, you know, within the U.S. political process. I think that that this kid was just looking to impress some of the people that that were his friends in this Discord group. That's really what it boiled down to. And that that's, again, that's a maturity issue fundamentally. Cred. And that, he, need, he needed that cred. Yeah. Like, when thinking about, like, you know, the the big Cold War cases of espionage where it's like, okay, this person was turned by the soviets and was providing it's like this this is really some some real dumb stuff right you know in terms of as far as we know this guy wasn't trying to like aid the russians or you know doing this out of some sort of bigger political motive of of you know wanting to preserve the constitution or whatever he was doing it for clout among people who like were younger than him on Discord, like I use Discord to play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you know, I would, well, number one, I would never do something like this, but like 
it's just so dumb. <laughs> and I, I think that's what makes it sort of hard for sort of analysts like like Pat and I to, to sort of fully wrap our heads around it maybe is just, man, like this is this is some boneheaded stuff. And okay, if you want to burn your future for for internet street cred, go for it, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, that it's it's really uh it's really out there. So uh going forward uh, Pat, you you know, on your in your testimony on Capitol Hill and in a podcast that we recorded recently about overclassification as an issue, um, you know, clearly there are documents that need to be secret. And to the extent that the United States has some level of commitment to uh, assisting Ukraine with its uh, defense, those documents ought to be secret because we don't want to unnecessarily cost, uh, you know, put at risk any human lives. Uh, and so so in terms of trying to suss out that that important difference between documents that should not be classified and documents that should be classified, what are what are some important reforms that Congress ought to consider? Well, I, I think this, of course, will start with whatever they end up doing here in the executive branch. But for one thing, you shouldn't, if you're in a SCIF, a secure compartmented information facility is, is what that acronym stands for, which is where this kind of material and material well above top secret is supposed to be stored. You shouldn't be able to just hit the print button, <laughs> fold it up and t- put it in your pocket and take it out and go, you know, go to your home and then like, you know, put it on a kitchen table or a kitchen counter, take some pictures and post it to Discord. So... Just as a practical matter, you know, the, the amount of printing of material like that really ought to be something that is very, very, very rigorously audited, if not as a general rule, completely prohibited. And then there are a whole series of, I think, access control issues that they're going to have to, you know, address here. You know, um, again, I'm I'm not as familiar with how the Air Force necessarily does this kind of thing as, as I am with, you know, how it still largely works at the agency, uh, CIA and, and some other places. But they're going to have to really, I think, do a fundamental reevaluation of just exactly how far down the food chain, you know, do you push this kind of information? How far do you allow it to go down the chain? I don't think that an E3 Airman First class, you know, is is the appropriate place for this kind of stuff to be. I, I think this has got to be handled by either warrant officers or or commissioned officers who've got more education, more judgment, uh, and the ability to make those kinds of uh, of judgment calls and decisions. Um, but we need a very, very serious look at this going forward. Whether that will truly happen or not remains to be seen. Patrick Eddington and Eric Gomez are senior fellows at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>